Father God, thank you. You are good. When there's nothing good in us, when there's nothing good in me, in your truth. Lord, I know that there's times in our lives when the world makes us want to doubt everything that's going on. That the world wants to tell us that there's not a reason for hope. But Lord, we know that our hope and our faith is in you through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for that grace and that mercy to allow your perfect son to come down and live a perfect life. So imperfect people like us would be seen perfect like him because of what he's done and how we are covered with his blood. God, I pray that there's somebody here today that realizes that and that they know that there is no other way but through Jesus. Please be with Matt and his message today and allow us to learn from it and take it in our daily lives. God, we love you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Um, it, we've been going through, for this almost this entire year, we've been going through a... Um, uh, the story series, and that's basically what we've been doing is walking through the storyline of the Bible. And just in case this is your first time with us or you forgot where we were, we're going to go real quick recap, not too long. And it, gonna, it starts with creation. The Bible starts with God being the creator of all things. He created everything good. He created man in his own image. But guess what happened? Man being in perfect paradise sins against God. And all the brokenness, sin, and death in the world comes because our first parents believed the serpent rather than trusting in the good God. God who'd given them everything. And so because of that, since that time, there has been sin, death, and destruction in the world. If you do not believe me, just turn on CNN or Fox News or whatever news program you want to watch. There is sin and devastation. You don't even have to look that far to national news. Just turn on the Nashville news and you will see the sin and devastation that's in the world. But here, praise be to God, he did not leave us in our sin and in this broken state. But through the people of Israel and through people he called out, through a family first, then a people, a nation, Israel, he brought about his Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect son of God who came to bear the penalty for sin that he didn't deserve because he was sinless, but he bore the penalty on the cross so that all who would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he rose again to show it's completed. His work is accepted by God. And then he empowered his church with the Holy Spirit to take this message of redemption, this message that we were once sinners, but now we can be reconciled to, to God by faith in Christ. To, he, he gave it to his church and empowered his church with his spirit to spread the message everywhere. And that's where we are. We are living in this time. We're a part of this empowered church. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 7. And we're going to talk about what it looks like in the church. Have you ever bought something and immediately regretted it? You bought it thinking this was going to revolutionize your life, and you got it, and it was a piece of garbage. This is something I could tell by the way you're talking about it. You've been there. In the back of comic books used to be these a couple of things. First off, I have a, a picture of x-ray glasses, an ad for that. I actually found this. So we got that back there. Oh, x-ray vision. You could buy this. this. This was found in the back of my old comic books, and I recognized this immediately. And you could, for a dollar, you could see through walls, see people's skeleton. It doesn't work. If it does, why are you paying so much for x-rays and, and CAT scans, right? I'll just put on these goggles. If you go to a doctor who wears x-ray vision, like, glasses and says you're okay, get a second opinion, okay? Secondly, here's the other ad that used to be in the back of those. Sea monkeys. Now... I, I bought into this one, okay? 
doesn't that look like you're going to buy this magical thing and there's actually be a kingdom of sea monkeys? Like you got this castle in the background and a family and you're going to be able to interact with these things and it's going to be great. Well, you get it. It's like a pack of powder that you add and add to this water and I guess the organisms that had been freeze-dried come alive and they're little tiny. It is such a waste. It makes a chia pet look like it's a car, okay? I mean, it's, it's that bad. You spent your money on that, and you didn't get what you deserve. I have a fear that because people do not talk about the gospel and what it's like to be in, the, be in a church and in a community of faith, that people get disillusioned with the church because they forget. They don't think they're getting what they paid for, or they don't think they're getting what Jesus paid for. And I want you to know something. The last two weeks, last week we looked at the fellowship in the church and how, how great it was that this called out group of believers had fellowship with one another and they cared about one another. And, and a lot of times we read this, these expressions of the church, these descriptions of the church, and forget that the church still is a mess. So you may have this idea of church that's something like this. This may be your expectations of what you get at church. It's this. The church is a perfect spiritual utopia free from problems, sin, and hypocrisy. Yeah, you're laughing because you know it's not true. There was a church right near the ballpark in Atlanta, Georgia, near near, near Turner Field that was called the Perfect Church. If you join, it immediately will not be the perfect church, right? It has no people on Sunday morning, okay? So I I want you to get this idea that the church is not this perfect spiritual utopia, free from problems, sin, and hypocrisy, but it is the called out people of God, empowered by his spirit to love God and to love people and proclaim the gospel. And if you don't get that, you come to church and the first time you see somebody act ugly and it happens, you're like, I'll never go back there. Hypocrites, sinners, we're all like, yeah, but Jesus paid it all, Holmes, okay? <laughs> so you are going to have to understand this. You come with the faulty expectations, you're going to feel gypped. Second thing, I want you to know this. There has been this whole brand of Christianity that's been out some, for some time, and it's kind of like Care Bear Christianity. And it comes out and it says like this, come follow Jesus and your life will be perfect and easy. Because that is what a cross always signifies, Right? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Oh, like a recliner. That sounds good. How did we get to this point? But we tell people, you follow, you follow Jesus, you will find all, this, all of this perfection will be entered into your life. Your best life will be now. And the, the facts are that has never been the case. Not only this, people have this idea of a therapeutic God, therapeutic Jesus, that if you will just come to him, your life will be perfect and you'll never struggle again. And then that people will love you and they'll just gladly receive you and your positive message and the Jesus that you preach. And if you're preaching that kind of positive Jesus, they might receive it, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so sometimes when something happens in our life as believers, something bad, somebody rejects us, some, we, get, we get called a name, we get called a bigot for believing in truth, we get this happen, we go, I don't understand why that's happening. And we want to take this whole thing back. Something must be wrong. And so we want to send the sea monkeys back, if you will. But I want you to get something. That is not the church. Now, if it was just my opinion, that would be something else. But I want you to know something. I'll show you in Scripture. We've seen, the perf- we've seen the fellowship and the mission of the church. We see them being in one mind. But there's another group of people who are in one mind against the church. So I want you to notice something. There are really two ways that people react to the church and its gospel. We've seen it in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people gladly received the word about Jesus. They repented of their sins. They were part of the mob that had Jesus killed. They heard the gospel. They realized their sin. They confessed their sins. They repented of their sins. They trusted in Christ and his sacrifice. And they were baptized as a, sign, as a symbol of what God had done inwardly. Okay? So 3,000 people received. Could you imagine if 3,000 people in Hartsville confessed faith? That would be like almost the whole county. Okay? That would be 
be wild. So people from all over profess faith in Christ. So this is gladly receiving it. But then you get people who are against it, and you really get this showing up in Acts chapter 7. We're going to see, look in here in a minute. And so there's two ways. You gladly receive or you reject. Now, the rejection can be indifference, although the Bible says there really is no indifference towards God because it says we all have a hostile mind towards him. Colossians 1.21, Romans 8.7, that our mind, the mind of the flesh is hostile against the things of the Spirit. So we are actually, even if we're kind of indifferent to the whole God thing, it says our minds are actually hostile. And if you want to get that, if you start reading the Ten Commandments and you start going, when you start reading them and you say, well, I don't really do that. I don't really, I don't really break this one. And that, that was kind of harsh. And, and you're doing that. What you're really doing is your mind is hostile to God being right and you being wrong. And then there's this segment of people who fiercely reject. And we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 7. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If not, it will be on the screen. You have this group of people who fiercely reject the gospel. And what is happening as we pick up is there's this man named Stephen who's called out to be a deacon to serve the churches. And he is there, and he gets, God starts working in his life, and he ends up getting an opportunity to share the gospel with a bunch of people who are hostile to the gospel. We're going to find out how hostile, because we get in verse 54, and he has been preaching to them, and they interrupt his message, okay? And in verse 54, it says this, now when they heard these things, the crowd, they were enraged. This is a strong word. It's, it's like being cut. Have you ever done that thing where you're working on, gentlemen, where you're working on something, and you accidentally cut yourself or hit yourself with something? And it is, a, it is immediate, it is abrupt, and it is painful. Have you ever been there before? I have. I did it with a sledgehammer the other day, and that was no fun. And I'm glad my wife didn't get it on videotape. Uh, I mean, that was abrupt, cut, that pain. And so this idea of being cut to the quick, he told them this. In his message, if you go back and you read in Acts chapter 7, he basically, it was a, it was, it was a tough message. He said this, you people, the people of Israel, have continually rejected God's prophets. And now you've done something worse. You've rejected the Son of God. And they got hot. They got cut. And that, Now, the repentance that we see in Acts chapter 2 is different than this one because instead of saying, I know I'm wrong, God forgive me, it's I know I'm wrong, I want to kill you. And that's what happens. So now when they heard, and the crowd heard these things, they became enraged, cut, and they ground their teeth at him. That's pretty mad, okay, that he would hear that. That's a, that's a phrase talking about how mad they were. You could probably hear the crowd. Maybe you could hear somebody going, ar, 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 grounding their teeth. I don't know. But verse 55, it says this. But Stephen, who is preaching this message and has everybody up in arms, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He looks into heaven what happens? And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is going to enrage them further because he's going to speak about it. Jesus being at the right hand of God signifies that his sacrifice was accepted by God and that Jesus is God and that Jesus reigns with God as Lord. They are rejecting the Christ. And so we see right here in verse 56, it says this, And he said, Behold! I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This makes them angrier because look in verse 57. It says this, but they cried out with a loud voice. The word for loud here is mega in, in, in the Greek language. And so it's like this, there was a loud voice. There's a lots of loud things happening here. They're becoming enraged, and so they cry out in a loud voice in verse 57, and they stop their ears, and they rushed together at him. This word together is very interesting because it's the same word used for the church being of one mind and in one accord. That's not talking about a Honda, guys. They weren't in one Honda together, okay? That means their mind, there you go, you follow me now, okay? That means that their hearts, the believers' hearts, were of one accord believing in the gospel. And then this crowd has become so angry, they're in one accord about hating the gospel. And so you know what they do? They plug their ears, kind of like a little kid who doesn't want to hear what you're saying, going, la, 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 la. And the rage 
builds up in them, and in one accord, this crowd, this mob full of religious leaders and, and people who would have been businessmen at the time and, and stalwarts of the community, they become so angry that in verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's a very interesting picture. They got this guy. They become so angry with him. They take him out. What is he, what is he guilty of? Words. And they're so enraged by this gospel message, this news about Christ, that he's the Messiah. They're so enraged that they run him outside, and they begin to stone him. And this idea of this guy named Saul, who's going to play a prominent role later on, Saul is standing there approving. He's a religious leader. And not only that, it has this image of them taking off their cloaks and laying it down at his feet. Now, you want to think about why are they doing that? It's so they can get a better throw on the rock. This is malicious. It is anger. It is violence. It is murder. And then look at Stephen. And as they were stoning Stephen... He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What does that remind you of? The words of Christ on the cross. Then we get, now, remember, who did, who did Jesus call out to? My Father, my God. Who does Stephen call out to? Jesus. It's another explanation why they were so mad. It's because Stephen and the early church has always believed that Jesus is God. And they cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then verse 60, it says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who is he acting just like? Christ on the cross. I don't think, I don't know, this is a supernatural act that's happening because when someone hurls a stone at you, you want to hurt them. <laughs> you want to not be their pal. If you don't believe me, watch a kid hit another kid. Usually, especially when I used to hit my brother, he was not, Mom, forgive Matt for hitting me. He knows not what he does. <laughs> no, it's like, Mom, punish him and I'll hit him too. <laughs> so this is a supernatural act preceded by the supernatural act of Jesus on the cross. And so we see this, that, and when we're stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees and he cried. Now, listen, he's crying in a loud voice too, right? The same word, mega. So there's a mega voice over here that's wanting to kill him. And then his voice is loud to the Lord Jesus. Now, if we're reading this like a health prosperity gospel person, here's what would happen. And as soon as Stephen's faith was seen, they turned and they loved him and they hugged him and they said, we're sorry, we're stoning you. We love you. Your best life is now. It's not how it happens. I'm making fun of that on purpose because it's so unbiblical and dumb. We get to this place. Well, what did they do? He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep, which is a term used regularly to describe death in the book of Acts. And it, and it points to the fact that the resurrection is coming, that they believe that, that since Jesus rose, they will too. Now, I want you to get something. I want you to notice something. In this passage, the gospel is preached. Remember, Acts 2, 3,000 people received it, and God kept adding to the church, adding to the church. Then this happens. People hear the gospel, and they have the adverse reaction to it. And, they say, and what happens? There's anger, remember? They cut to the heart. They're yelling. They go after him, and they want to hurt him. They refuse to listen. They will not hear what he's saying. Not only that, they, physically, they have physical violence takes place. Murder happens. And then we see in, verse, in chapter 8 that... In verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of this execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So I want you to get this. 
Life in the church is full of fellowship. It's full of the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It is full of love for one another. It is full of the knowledge and the communion with other saints and with God himself through the gospel. But I want you to know something. As the church does its task, as we go about preaching the good news, there will be some who fiercely reject us. Historically, that's been the case. The gospel has been sealed and shown to be worthy by so many Christian martyrs who have given their life for the faith. I want you to know something, too. Though we do not sit here today in imminent danger of violence, we certainly are being persecuted or at least dismissed by the culture at large. Mostly what they do to us is they refuse to listen now. They will not listen to an argument, a sane argument, against any number of sins that we will talk about. They will call us bigots immediately. They will not hear us. And so that, at this point, in this culture, is the greatest persecution we have. But throughout the world, we even see this. The, Iraq, the populations of Christians in Iraq is almost, is almost none because of ISIS and all the wars that have happened over there. It's happened in Syria and so many places where there's Turkish Christians are being attacked quite regularly, and so they have to seal their witness in the gospel. So I want you to get this fact, that to follow Jesus is not an easy thing. It's a worth it thing, but it's not an easy thing, and it will result and can result in people persecuting and rejecting you. That's a hard word. But I want to ask this question this morning. Well, how do we act when people react to us harshly? How do we act when people react to us harshly? Well, this passage is going to help us see this, but I want to make this very clear. It's not an eye for an eye. Remember Jesus said my king, when, when, when he was about to be arrested, Peter grabbed a sword and wanted to cut, and cut off a guy's ear. He was obviously not aiming for an ear because in what fight do you go for the ear? When he had the sword, he was going for the neck. He was a fisherman, and he stunk with a knife. And he got the ear, and what did Jesus say? Yeah, they disagree with me, so let's build a wall and let's cut somebody. No. Put the sword away. My kingdom is not of this world. And then what does he say in John 15? Just so you know this. The rejection of Christians is not a rejection of who we are, but it's a rejection of who we are in, who is Christ. John 15, Jesus would say this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, that, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If, you, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The 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 reaction to the church when it's truly preaching the gospel. You know, let's be honest. Sometimes the church just opens itself up. To, we're just ugly sometimes and jerks. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying when the church is the church and preaches the gospel and loves and it's still rejected, that is a rejection of the Christ that we bear because we are no longer of this world, but we are of him. So how do we react? I want to give you, give you several ways in which we need to react when we are experiencing, and we will experience it to some degree when we experience persecution or a harsh reaction or rejection. How many of you love that, actually, to feel have a harsh reaction to you? You ever been that, and maybe you've been the, the perpetrator, but you ask someone a question and they give you a short answer? Don't you love that? Oh, please do that again. That made me feel great. Why don't you figure it out on your own? Oh, I will. Thanks for that advice. See you later. How many of us love the rejection thing? Okay, you think about back in the dating days when you go up to a girl and ask her out, and, and it was like, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I was just kidding. <laughs> love that, right? Rejection, that's part of it. How do we react sometimes? By, oh, they were, <laughs> she just doesn't know what she's messing out on. She's dumb. Okay, 
there's all these things. <laughs> Obviously, they don't realize how awesome I am. That's why they re- responded to me so harshly. How do we react? We react to spirit-filled believers like Stephen did. The first one I want you to know is how do we react? We don't react in retaliation. We react by keeping our eyes on the beauty of Jesus. Remember, verse 54, they, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And they said, but look at Stephen in verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, he was walking in the Spirit. He was in the church, serving in the church. He was mighty in the scriptures. And because of that, he was walking in the spirit. And every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so he was walking in the spirit of God. And look what happens. God gave him a vision of the reality that was, that the reality, the unseen reality that's happening. And he, remember, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. The glory of God, when it's expressed in the Bible, makes men fall to their knees. It makes men cry. It makes men as dead men. And this guy, before he goes to glory, gets to see glory. Now, we may not have phys- physical visions, but in the scriptures, which are delivered to us by the Holy Spirit, we get this picture of God in Christ that is amazing. Going on, he would say this, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We don't know why Jesus is, set, is standing. Most of the time, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God on the throne. There's a couple of reasons why people talk about this. There's really not a great explanation that I've read commentators are all over the board about this. There's a lot of good ones. One of them is that he's standing to receive Stephen. We don't know that for sure. It's just a speculation, but it it seems right. There's another one that relates this to Daniel chapter 7, in which Jesus is standing there as a judge. I don't know. And he's judging the people that are there, but I do know this. He sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, and and it's evident that Jesus is all he said he was. He is God. And he sees the glory of God, and he sees Christ. And he says this word, this exclamation, Behold! You don't say behold a lot (laughs) in life, unless you're odd. Can you imagine? Behold! Maybe when I actually, like, clean something at the house, I will say, behold, what I've done. He was like, good job. Good job, honey. This behold word is an exclamation. And then we see it in verse 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens open up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees the unseen reality. And I want you to know something, because we are believers in Christ and we've been given his holy word, which is inspired by God, given through man, and is exactly his word. It's just as authoritative as Christ was speaking to us today. We can see the unseen things. We know something, that the fight that we're having with this person, the rage that is being experienced against us of persecution, is not the person... It is representative of a spiritual battle that they are pawns in and are in prison too. Paul would talk about this in Ephesians. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, against people, but against powers and principalities and the rulers of the air. And so we know that people, when they persecute us, they're rejecting Christ and they are in the imprisonment of satanic powers. And we can see and love through that because we know that those people are made in the image of God and there's a way away from their persecution, a way to life. And where does it start? In this beautiful vision of Christ. And because he has this beautiful vision of Christ, what is he able to do? He says, Lord, receive my spirit. He is ready to go to Jesus. There is far worse things that can happen in your life than to die because to die is to be with the Lord if you're in him. Secondly, see this, Lord, he says, do not hold these sins against him. That is a supernatural act that you can only say when you see what's coming, and it's better than where you are. You know, what you value keeps you going during the tough times. Give you an example of this. Person who is in athletics will endure hard practices and wind sprints and weightlifting for 
the joy of playing the sport and winning the game. We see it all the time. We like to watch that on Saturdays in the fall, okay? That being a football player is only fun one day out of the year or one day out of the week is when you play, okay? Unless you're one of those real guys that got, like, something wrong in the, in the old uh, noodle there. Like, I like to hit it every day, okay? Let's do some more wind sprints, all right? That, that right there, what keeps, the, what keeps you going through those practices and the heart and the suicides and the sprints and the runs, it's the playing, it's the passion for the game, the love to win. Let's think about it this way. Some of you work long, hard hours. Why do you do that? Is it because you love to work long, hard hours? No, you love your family, and you, love, you want to have a financial security for them, and so you work hard. Why? Because of the end game. And I want you to say these are only small. This is, these are light compared to the end game that we have. Stephen sees the glory of Jesus, and it is enough, and it has throughout the centuries been enough for men to endure hardship and persecution and to keep passion and hope alive. Why? Because Jesus is better than life. Jesus is far greater. What is ahead of us in Jesus is better than the poshest life we could find here. What's ahead of us in Jesus, what, what we, the promises of God in him that are ours because of faith in Christ are far greater than any hardship we could endure here. And so Stephen gets this vision, I hope you get this, and I hope you stay in the Word, and I hope you hear this, that Jesus is beautiful, and he can get you through these hard times living for him. What would Paul say? He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I count this life and all these things as rubbish, as nothing compared to the glory of knowing him. If you are here today and that sounds hollow and vacant and you don't see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, you may not be in him because those who are in him see him as incomparably great. There is so much more out there in Christ. He is unbelievable. Going on, we see this. He and, and, and Stephen, he is motivated, and he keeps his eyes on in the beauty of Jesus in his moments. And, and when our, we're in our persecution, the way that we can go and move forward and stay in rejection, and we can, we can live a life of faith and, and, and of hope, is focusing on Jesus, keeping remembering him. The second thing we see here is that that Stephen does the supernatural thing of asking God to forgive his enemies as they are hurting him. This is unbelievable forgiveness. As the deed is done, being done, he asks in verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. God, please forgive them. He wants them to believe the good news that he has. This is the second thing we see. We must be people in these hard times, not to want an eye for an eye, but to do what Jesus said, to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to forgive, and to seek the forgiveness of our persecutors and enemies, just like Christ. And I want you to know something. We cannot forgive unless our forgiveness is rooted in Christ. I know this because I've struggled with unforgiveness in my life. Sometimes I still do. And you know what the kicker is? It always comes back to this. How much has Christ forgiven me? The sin, my sins which sent him to the cross, far greater than any sin that could ever be committed against me. And so I don't have really much room to hold unforgiveness. And it's hard to deal with it. But the ultimate thing that will help us and move us from unforgiveness to forgiveness is Christ. And so when people, and it's not fun to be relegated to the, to the, the sides of society. It's not fun to be seen as the, oh, the fundamentalist Christian, the bigot, the one who's against everything and not for anything, the one who is a hater of people because we believe certain things that the Scripture calls sin are sin. We stand, we stand for biblical sexuality. 
We stand for marriage, being between one man and one woman. We stand for this not because we hate, but because our God has given us truth. We don't like to be put to the outcast of society and to be looked down upon. But I tell you one thing, if we get angry, we have lost. But if we forgive and seek their forgiveness, God will move. Going on, I want you to know something. This is going to be an odd thing. Verse 8, after Stephen is stoned, it says, Saul, he approved of his execution. He was standing there going, this is the right thing to happen. This guy, he believes, Saul believes Stephen to be a blasphemer of God. In verse 8, uh, one, or chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So as soon as this happened, people started persecuting Christians in the church in Jerusalem. Now, and they were all scattered throughout throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They hung around. Then verse 2, I want you to notice this verse. Devout men, godly men, men who are committed to the Scriptures and to, to Christ, they buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. Now, that may not seem to be a verse that'll preach, okay? That may not seem like you, you wanted to preach like you talk about the blood of Jesus, but they mourned over Stephen and buried him. Oh, I got to preach right there, okay? Why do I mention this verse? Well, here's the thing. He was killed in mob violence. He was killed as a blasphemer because they, he, they, the people who were angry at him believed that they were, he was misrepresenting God because he was claiming that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And so for these men to bury him and to do what, would happen to any brother or sister who would have died, and to, to mourn him was actually putting their life in danger. Because what's to say if you're honoring the guy that they just murdered, they're not going to murder you? But they did it anyway. Why? Because they just lived out their faith in front of this tyrannical persecution. And so Church, when we encounter tough times and we feel the persecution coming and we feel rejected, keep our eyes on Jesus, forgive and seek forgiveness, and also this, just stay steadfast and live an ordinary life as a believer. Just do what you know is right to do from the Scriptures and keep doing it. Don't matter the consequences. Don't call a press conference Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm violating the letter of the law. Don't call a press conference. Don't draw attention to it. Just do it. Take a little note from Nike and just do it, okay? Just live your Christian life out. Follow Christ. Do what these guys did. Their brother died for the faith. And so you know what they did? They weren't afraid of it. They honored him. They honored God by honoring him and his faithfulness, faithful witness, and they buried him. It could have turned out bad for them. It doesn't. And they did it in the midst of a climate, in verse, 40, in verse 1 of chapter 8, a climate of persecution. Now, I want, you to, I want to tell you a story. I got a picture of a guy right here. His name is Eric Liddell. You may have heard of Eric Liddell uh, from, the fa- the, from the famous movie, Oscar-winning movie called Chariots of Fire. If you want to go check out a movie, that's a pretty cool movie. Eric was a Scottish runner who ended up, against all odds, winning an Olympic gold medal in the 400-meter race during the 1924 Paris Olympics. Now, what's so staggering about him is the 400 meters was not his race. He was a sprinter. But they held the, the races for sprinters on a Sunday, and he was a devout believer, and he believed that you should not do any work at all on a Sunday. So you know what he did? He forsook gold and said, nope, I'm not going to do it because I'd rather honor God than honor men. And that's displayed in this movie, Chariots of Fire. Well, he comes back, and he runs like a man possessed by the Spirit, not by a demon, okay? And so he runs. There you go, trickle. All right. He runs this race and wins. And because of that, he becomes a celebrity of the time. And not only that, he's a celebrity who has a deep calling from God to missions. And so you know where he ends up? China. 
as a missionary. The story ends before he gets there most of the time. But he goes to China as a missionary. And guess when he goes to China as a missionary? Right before World War II. If you know anything about World War II, the Japanese were making the lives of the Chinese very difficult. And when Pearl Harbor came around, anybody who was a Westerner was rounded up and placed into a concentrate or an internment camp. And so he was, he had, they were rounded up, put in a cattle car, taken 300 miles from his home, and put in this camp. This place was bad news. It was in a village that the Japanese had completely destroyed, so the toilets and the plumbing did not work, and so they had makeshift latrines, and as soon as they got there, the people who had been using them were sick, and so as soon as they got off the 300-mile the ride, they had to empty latrines out. Now, why am I bringing this up? Is it because he was an Olympic runner? No, it's because of what he did in this internment camp. I'm not going to tell you that there were thousands of people converted in this internment camp, because there weren't. I'm not going to tell you that he preached the gospel to all the Japanese guards and they forsook their ancestral religion and let him all free. That is the, that's the story you want to hear. That's the one you make a movie about. No, you know what this man did? In the worst conditions, he lived there for two years. He was in his 40s at the time, early 40s. He did this. He taught a weekly Bible study in this camp. No food, no latrines. He planned worship services regularly. Some of the Western schools that existed in China, the kids who were in those schools got taken from their schools and put in these camps without their parents. And so he became Uncle Eric to all these kids. And he planned recreation activities. He refereed hockey games. He cared for many of the teenagers in the camp with displaced parents. Not superstar stuff, right? This is not like make the news type stuff. Third thing he did is he would wake up early with another friend of his every morning before the long days of work in the internment camp, and he would buy a little lamp lit with peanut oil. They would do devotions and pray together every morning before they would go work for, t for 10 to 12 hours a day for the Japanese in awful conditions. Not only that, he kept when, as the, as it prolonged, people became weary with their captors. He was in there for two years in this camp. And people started doing the things you hear about, started stealing from each other, and started, started behaving poorly in this camp, and started being hateful to one another because of the disparity of the situation. But because of the grace of God, Eric never wavered, and he continually encouraged his fellow believers in the camp to forgive and pray for their Japanese captors. This made such an impression on one of the prisoners. His name was Joe Cotterill. That he, Joe, after being in the intern camp for two years, and when they, were, when they were liberated after the end of the war, Joe goes and becomes a missionary in Japan. Not only that, he maintained this generous spirit. There was a scene that happens in his life at the end of his life because ultimately Eric will die in this camp of a stroke in poor conditions at the age of 43. And right before he passed away, a winter came. And one, he noticed a guy in his cell block, if you will, in the housing he was in that didn't have any shoes. And it was going to be cold. So Eric goes and he gets the shoes he wore winning the gold medal. And he gave it to this man with no shoes. That is ordinary Christian behavior in extraordinary circumstances. And that is, that is, folks, we may be in extraordinary circumstances in this country. It's a mess right now. It's a mess throughout the world. But do you know what we do? We live according to the Spirit and we love one another. And we pray for those who persecute us. And we love them. And we seek their forgiveness. And we seek to forgive them. We go on filling our hearts with God's word and, and teaching others to do the same. We go on loving people, the least and the last and the down and out. We go about preaching the good news. We don't need legislative help. 
We need gospel mission. We need the gospel to ooze out of our pores and be seen in our actions and in our words. And then finally, note this, if you will. Look at the end of the passage. In Acts 8.1, it says this, And Saul approved of this execution, okay? Remember this guy's name, Saul. His name will change, as will his destiny. And in verse 8, going down, it says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, go down with me to verse 4 real quick. Actually, go to the verse 3. It says this, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering into every house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And verse 4 says this, And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Acts 1.8, Jesus' last words to the disciples before his ascension, you know what he says? When the, you, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That happens in Acts chapter 2. So you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So guess how God moves his children from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria? Persecution. The very ones who are trying to snuff out the gospel, spread it like seeds. The word scattered, the Greek word scattered, in verse 1, they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, has the idea of someone casting seeds. So in this great persecution and this great anger against Christians, guess what happens? They spread Christianity throughout the region. You can't kill it. I heard Matt Chandler talking about the Apostle Paul, who is going to be converted just the next chapter after this. The guy who saw now and is like, kill him, is going to be the one who goes, Jesus is Lord, and will be killed for the faith. Talking about him, Matt Chandler in a sermon said something like this. Paul was the most infuriating guy to his enemies. You put him in prison, you know what happens? He converted the guards. They're like, drat. All right, we're going to kill you. Awesome. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Man, we'll let you go. I'll preach the gospel some more. That gummit, okay? That's exactly what happens to the gospel people. When we, don't get, when we don't get in retaliation mode, when we don't get in angry American mode, when we get in gospel-centered mode, we go, you're going to persecute us, we're going to love you, not because, we, not because it's natural, but because it's spirit-led. And we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to live the gospel, we're going to love people, and we're going to forgive, and we're going to preach this word everywhere, everywhere. Now, I also want you to notice this, because I'm telling you what, I bet you some of you are like, yes, we got to preach the word, we got to preach the word, we got to preach the word. Matt and other elders, you got to preach the word, that's what we're really talking about, right? Guess what? You know where the apostles are? Look in verse 1. I'm not making this up, okay? It's in here. They're all scattered out, all these people except the apostles. And then who goes about preaching the word? In 8, it's the deacons. In verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered, who are not the apostles, went about preaching the word. You realize something? The mission of preaching the gospel is not just for elders and pastors. The gospel spread by the people of God. Now, they need to be led and given an example by the elders and the leaders of sharing the gospel, obviously. But the good news was spread by the people. The people of God. It's a scary world. It's scary what happens on the news. It's scary to see the marginalization of Christianity, or at least cultural Christianity. It's scary to see people dismissing reasoned arguments about things. It's scary to see the insanity of political correctness run amok. It's scary to see the reaction people have when people of faith want to stand on the Scriptures. This is nothing new, first off. It may be a new reiteration of it. It may be new to this culture. It may be new to us, but it's not new to the history of the world. And secondly, the way to overcome it is not hate and fear. The way to overcome and how we must react 
is simply to behold the glory of Christ as revealed in Scripture, to follow his example and his power to forgive, to live our lives humbly, serving others, living out the gospel, being filled with the word, walking in the spirit, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, going after the least and the last and the disenfranchised and preaching them the gospel, showing them tangible acts of love. The answer is not anger and hate. That is not how we react, folks, because our Savior didn't do it. How could we? The answer is gospel change through gospel people. God is so good to us that we don't have to fight with human weapons, but we fight with the sword of the Spirit and with laid down lives. And so if you would, I'd ask you to do this. I'd ask right now that if we would bow together in prayer before we have our deacons come up and do the offering. And I want us to spend a moment, and I want you to, to ask God, say, hey, God, from this message today, what did you need me to hear? What is it that had my name on it? Help me to walk in love and not hate. Help me to walk in hope and not fear. Maybe sin in your life, and maybe attitudes in your life that you need to turn from and repent of. Just take a moment before we pray together. Spend a second with the Lord. God, we come to you with open hearts and open minds. We come to you with hearts bowed. God, we pray that we would live out our faith as you called us to, simple, sincere, humbly, that we would love and worship you and see your beauty and forgive because of your forgiveness and live out a simple faith in honor of you and just continually preach the word and preach the word and we, we trust you for the results. We're so thankful for Christ and for calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray that you would do that for so many, there's so much darkness, and we pray that you would call those out of darkness into your light, God, and we pray you bring conviction of sins. We pray for those who persecute us. We lift up those in the LGBT community that think we hate them, and we pray, God, that they would see that we just want them to repent and trust Christ their lifestyle does not lead to fulfillment or happiness. It's just, it leads to death. And God, we pray that they will repent. Not, and that they would come to follow you. God, we pray for those who, who find us that are talking about sin to be antiquated and wrong. And God, we pray that, that we would love them and gently show them and we pray you bring conviction of sin, and we show them that there's a way out of sin, and that's Jesus. We pray for those who, who persecute us. Help us love our enemies, God. God, we, we thank you for this church and this time. We ask you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.